The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, the 23rd chapter, verses 6, 7, and 8. Verses 6, 7, and 8 in the 23rd chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And the account goes on to tell us that there arose a great cry and that the dissension became so great that the chief captain in charge of the soldiers, fearing that in their wild disputation they might even tear the apostle limb from limb, had to intervene and to rescue him and to take him to a place of safety. Now this is one of those memorable scenes in the life and ministry of this remarkable man, the Apostle Paul. Here is a man you remember who, as he's just reminded this council, was a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, a man who'd been brought up as a very strict religious Jew and Pharisee, and who for years had opposed bitterly the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth concerning him and who had indeed felt that his greatest work on earth was in a sense to destroy the Christian church. But you remember what happened to him going on the road to Damascus to carry out that very intention. Suddenly, about midday, he was given that vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and his whole life was changed. And from being the bitterest persecutor of the Christian church, he became its greatest preacher and went about preaching in various countries, not sparing himself, traveling and working, preaching, weeping day and night, so that he stands out in the records as the mightiest evangelist that the Christian church has ever known. But here he is at this moment on trial. He's been arrested. He's in charge, actually, of the Roman authorities, the Roman Empire, you remember, had conquered Palestine just prior to these things, so they were responsible for law and order. And they had heard that there was a great dispute going on amongst the Jews with respect to this man Paul, and they had intervened in order to prevent a riot. And they're anxious to know what it was all about. So they called the apostle forward before the council and asked him to speak for himself. And here the record tells us that Paul, observing uh, something which was quite familiar to him, that the council seemed to be divided as between Sadducees and Pharisees, chose to say that he was a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, and that he was really being called in question because he had gone about preaching that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, and that his proof of that was that he had risen from the grave. He had gone round saying 
that this person whom people regarded as but a man, Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth, was none other than the eternal Son of God who had come into this world to save men, to rescue them from their sins and from the wrath of God. And that his proof of that fact was that though men had taken him and had crucified him and had taken down his body from the tree and had buried it in a grave and had rolled a stone over it, that he had risen out of it, that he couldn't be held by death, that he disappeared, he had indeed risen again, the first truly to rise from the dead, and had manifested himself to his disciples and various chosen people, and then had ascended up into heaven in their very sight. And he had a further proof. He, Paul himself, as I've just reminded you, had seen him with his naked eyes on the road to Damascus. He didn't realize at first who it was. He just saw a face that was so glorious that he was blinded by it. He'd never seen such a face, nor such an expression. And he cried out, saying, Who art thou, Lord? And back came to him the astonishing and shattering reply, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. That was to him the final proof. The thing I say that not only convinced his intellect, but changed his whole life and turned him into a preacher and an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now, here he is, I say, on trial, and he makes this statement. And the effect of that was that a great dispute arose at once, no longer between Paul and the council, but between the different members of the council, the Sadducees and Pharisees, and they almost came to blows. And there was great excitement. And the chief captain has to rescue the apostle. Now, I call your attention to this story, this bit of history, on this Easter Sunday evening, because it seems to me that it is a very perfect and exact description of the world tonight. As I read this story, I see nothing but men and women today. Of course, this is a little picture, and I'm talking about the great world, but as I want to try to show you, the description is really identical. There is no difference at all. Here in miniature, as it were, in these words, we've got a description and a picture of mankind this very evening, because we are constantly being reminded of it, are we not, these days? The world doesn't change. I mean by that that men and women don't change. Of course, we've got motor cars and aeroplanes, and we are talking about something called an atomic bomb. They didn't know anything about things like that. But they were men and women, as we are. And it's men and women who don't change. Whether you walk to commit sin or whether you fly in an aeroplane makes no difference. You're still committing sin. That's the important thing. Oh, yes, there are great changes and developments in the means of locomotion and in our treatment of diseases and many other things. But, oh, as we shall see as we unfold this story, man as man doesn't change at all. He's exactly what he was nearly 2,000 years ago. And what I want to try to show this evening is that all who are not Christians are simply identical with the members of that council. 
whom the Apostle Paul was addressing on this occasion. Now let me show it to you like this. Look at the picture. Look at the tragedy. See these men busy with their discussions and their arguments and their disputations. And while they're busy with that, ignoring the Son of God and the truth that is in him. That's the tragedy of this picture. Sadducees and, scri Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes, all religious people, all believers in God and all concerned about God and worshipping God and about life and how life is to be lived and so on. And there they are arguing and disputing and quarreling and becoming violent and in the meantime ignoring altogether the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, the one who's got the answer to every question, the solution to every problem, the one who has solved every difficulty. That's the tragedy of this picture, isn't it? It's the tragedy of the world tonight. Yes, the world is arguing and debating and disputing what can be done, how can we put things right. They're honest, they're sincere, they're zealous. Of course they are. All these people are, as they were in this picture. And there the world is tonight occupied about these things and talking and debating and becoming heated and excited. And the Son of God, forgotten and ignored, the fact that he ever left heaven and came on earth, not thought of. The fact that he died on the cross for sin, not remembered. The fact that he rose triumphant from the grave and is the first to rise from the dead doesn't enter into calculations at all. It's the tragedy of the world. And unless it's far too often the tragedy of the church herself that instead of talking about him, they're talking about how to stop the use of hydrogen bombs. While we are discussing the bombs, he is being ignored, and there he is with his message, his answer. But we are so busy, we forget all about him. That was what was happening in this council chamber. While they were so busy discussing, he was just being forgotten. And this great world with its teeming masses tonight, with all its concerns and interests, is guilty of precisely the same thing. He is forgotten and ignored. What a tragedy. That God's word to men, God's offer to men, is not even being considered by so many masses of people. But let me go on to a second thing that strikes us on the very surface of this picture. Observe the significance that these men attach to their divisions and to their points of view and their complete failure to see that finally these don't matter at all because they're all basically one. You read this uh, account and uh, as you read it superficially and rather cursorily, if someone were to ask you, how many points of view were there on that occasion in that room? You'd say at once three. Well, who were they? Well, there was Paul, that was one point of view. There were the Sadducees, there were the Pharisees. One, two, three. But that's wrong. There were only two points of view. Paul and all who didn't agree with Paul, whether Pharisees or Sadducees, doesn't matter. That's the only real division. There were only two points of view there. 
But you see, to them, this uh, subdivision was tremendously important. Pharisees, Sadducees, with their respective positions and arguments about which I shall remind you in a moment. And they think this is very important, and they attach great significance to it. And they're absolutely blind to the fact that really there is no meaning fundamentally and finally in all their disagreements. I'm suggesting this evening that it's exactly the same with the world tonight. The world is divided up into almost endless categories. And different people divide them up in different ways. Some people divide up mankind according to wealth, the rich and the poor. Some divide mankind up according to social status. Those who have access into the highest circles, the people who are very high up, just the few, and the common people, the masses. And to them these divisions are very significant. Others divide them up into learned and ignorant. Oh, I mustn't waste your time. They divide them up politically. They divide them up economically, and so on. And, of course, these things to them are so important and so vital. They'll argue about them like these people did. They'll quarrel about them. They'll envy one another and fight with one another. They'll pay money to get into different groups and divisions and so on. These are the big things and the important things to them. And they'll fight for them. They'll die for them. And yet, you know, in the last analysis... These divisions and distinctions are absolutely irrelevant. There's only one major distinction in the world, Christian, non-Christian. One touch of nature makes the whole world kin. And when you scratch beneath the surface of men's skins or their ideas, you come across exactly the same thing. We're all the same. We're all common clay. We're all this curious mixture and amalgam of hereditary and environmental forces and factors and powers latent within us, lust, passion, desire, envy. We're all the same. And yet how much we make of the divisions and distinctions, Sadducee and Pharisee, tremendously important. According to this book, Irrelevant. And the third general point which I see here is this one. I see a, a very perfect and a final exposure about the, fellow, about the difficulty with respect to the Christian faith. Now the common thing to say today is that the real difficulty about Christianity is intellectual. Most people today who are not Christian are never tired of telling us that they are in that position because of their minds, because of their intellects, because of their knowledge, because of their understanding. Oh, I mustn't waste your time in describing it again. You're all perfectly familiar with it. The fact is that the average man today who is not a Christian feels rather sorry for those of us who are Christian. They feel that somehow or other we are lacking in intellect. It's just because we don't know things. We have lived in obscurity. We are obscurantists and so on. It's, it's, it's a question of intellect, they say. But here this uh, story explodes that once more and once and forever. 
It wasn't intellect that caused the division in that council chamber. It wasn't intellect that divided Pharisees from Sadducees. And it wasn't intellect that divided Pharisees and Sadducees on the one hand from Paul on the other. The difference between the Pharisee and the Sadducee was not intellectual ability and acumen. It isn't that at all. And I say the thing that makes Paul different from both the other groups is not a matter of intellect. You see, he in and of himself settles that argument once and forever. Paul was the same man intellectually before his conversion as he was afterwards. He didn't decide to throw his intellect overboard when he became a Christian. I can prove that very easily. If you want an intellectual bit of exercise, well, I've got it for you. Begin to study Paul's epistles. And if you're interested in logic and in intellectual gymnastics, well, you've got more than enough there for the rest of your life. One of the giant intellects of all the ages, handling the profundities and the immensities, the same intellect after as before. This isn't a question of intellect, my friend. I'm going to show you that in detail in a moment. But let me make this general point here. If there's anybody listening to me at this moment who says, no, I can't believe your Christianity, my intellect can't accept this resurrection fact of yours, let me tell you at once, it isn't your intellect that causes the trouble. The difficulties in this matter are never intellectual. They're on a much deeper level. They're moral. And they're even bigger and deeper than that. The intellect is the least important factor. It is something which the Bible calls sin, which produces blindness, which renders the intellect incapable of working truly. It's an intellect in blinkers. It's an intellect that's warped and perverted, and it needs to be set at liberty. It isn't intellectual. It's something that affects the intellect deeper than it, sin. All that, it seems to me, is suggested here on the very surface, because, after all, the Sadducees and Pharisees and Paul were in a sense equally gifted intellectually, were confronting the same facts, were concerned about the same things, and had a very, had had a very similar kind of training and of background. Very well. All this leads me to lay down one great fundamental proposition. The only thing that matters in the world this evening is belief and unbelief. That's what it all comes to. Standing there in the background, as I say, ignored and forgotten, is the Son of God. The one who came into the world and whose coming has made us call this year 1955. The one who divides history into B.C. and A.D. There he remains. And I say only one thing matters, whether we believe in him or whether we don't believe in him. Belief or unbelief. And because this is such a vital matter, because not only our immediate happiness but our eternal future and our eternal bliss and welfare depend upon our relationship to him and our belief in him, it's because of that I would plead with you to consider with me the picture that we are given here in this incident of the characteristics of unbelief and the characteristics of belief. It's the only thing that matters. Let me show it to you. What are the characteristics of unbelief? Well, don't they appear in the light of this history, this story, to be rather fatuous? 
doesn't it seem to be rather irrelevant in all its activity? Doesn't it seem to be an utter waste of time? Doesn't the whole of life apart from Christ in this incident appear to be a pure waste of time and a sham and a pretense and a make-believe? What do you mean, says someone? Well, let me put it like this to you. As you look at these people who are not Christians in this council chamber, at first you rather feel that their groupings and divisions are very real and very important. Now look at these two groups, these Sadducees and Pharisees. I say it appears at first to be a very real and a very important and a very vital distinction. We are even told it here like this. That, uh, there, that there is this difference between these two groups. We are told that the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit. But the Pharisees confess both. Now you say, speaking philosophically, this is surely rather important. There, there is an obvious and rather a vital difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, therefore. The Sadducees were materialists, they were rationalists, and they didn't admit the supernatural. They didn't believe in the miraculous, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in spirits. But the Pharisees were very different. No, they said that isn't so. There is this miraculous element. The supernatural will keep on breaking in. There's no question, they said, about angels. And there they are, these two groups, and as you look at them at first, I say, you're rather impressed by the difference. But you know, their differences didn't stop at that point. They disagreed and differed also in their attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ. The Sadducees did not believe in him and rejected him because of this claim that he had risen from the dead. That was their main ground for rejecting him. They said, we will not believe this person, we will not believe the truth concerning him, because his followers claim that he rose from the dead. Now they said that is impossible, because nobody can rise from the dead. Such a thing is impossible, and because it's impossible it hasn't happened, and therefore if their whole faith is based upon the statement that it has happened, it must be wrong, therefore we are not Christians. And it's such logic that you can't find a flaw in it. It seems perfectly established. They, the Sadducees, rejected Christ because it is claimed that he rose again. The objection to them was the resurrection. What was the matter with the Pharisees then? Why did the Pharisees reject Christ? Well, not because of the resurrection as we see in the story. Well, why did they reject him and the message concerning him? Well, they rejected him because of his death. They had no trouble about the resurrection, but they couldn't believe in his resurrection because his death was a stumbling block to them. In what way? Well, in this way. These Pharisees were the religious teachers of the Jews, and they had been teaching, it was the tradition amongst them, that a great Messiah was going to come that God had promised to send a Messiah, a deliverer into the world, and especially to deliver the children of Israel. And their idea about the Messiah was this, that he would come as a great king, as a mighty military personage, 
that he'd gather together all the lost tribes of Israel. He'd set himself at the head of a great army and with his incomparable strategy, he'd rout the Roman army, he'd smash the Roman Empire. Israel, the Jews, would be the greatest nation on the face of the earth. The whole world would be doing its obeisance to Palestine and to Jewry with this great king conquering at the head. They were looking forward to, to his coming. They preached about him. They held the picture before the people. But these miserable people called Christians were saying that uh, a person who'd come and was born out of a poor family, so poor that when he was born they couldn't afford to offer a lamb according to the law, they couldn't afford anything but just two turtle doves. Born in the family of artisans and who'd worked with his hands as a carpenter, and who'd started preaching at the age of 30, with nothing regal apparently about him at all, followed by a rabble of poor people who didn't matter and who didn't count, who was asked on certain occasions when he'd done rather striking things, go up to Jerusalem, declare yourself, and refuse to do so. And in the end, the thing was so appalling, they could scarcely mention it, such was their sarcasm and their scorn. He was taken and crucified in utter weakness between two thieves on a cross on a hill called Calvary. And yet these Christians, these miserable people say that this is the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Son of God. Impossible nonsense. Incredible. How rare the distinction seems to be between Pharisees and scribes. The Sadducees reject him because he rose again. The Pharisees reject him because he died. You see, the distinction, the division seems to be very real, doesn't it? Yes, but that leads me at once to my second point, which is this. The story tells us that these divisions and distinctions always cancel one another out. Don't forget my major principle, which is this that unbelief is always fatuous, that unbelief is always ridiculous, that unbelief is always a waste of time. And here it is. It appears to be imposing and wonderful based on arguments and understanding and intellect. But you see that in reality it cancels itself out. Its divisions negative and nullify one another. Now, this is always true of unbelief. Had you ever realized that, I wonder? Here it is to perfection. The Sadducees and Pharisees cancel one another out completely. They didn't know that, but it's a fact. Yes, but uh, unbelief is always guilty of this. Do you remember how our Lord put it on one occasion? He said, what can you do with men like this? He was talking about his own generation that didn't believe in him. He said, what can be done with them? He said, they're like children, playing and crying in the marketplaces, saying, we have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. John the Baptist, he said, came eating and drinking, and they say he hath a devil. The Son of Man is come eating and drinking. 
And they say, Behold a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. John was an abstemious man. He lived in the desert. He ate nothing but locusts and wild honey. Neither eating nor drinking. A devil, they say. The son of man does the exact opposite. Still, they're not satisfied. They say, Behold a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and of sinners. You see, always arguing against themselves, cancelling one another out, always complaining, and it's equally true in the modern world. Take all the unbelievers in the world tonight, take the people to whom this Easter Sunday means nothing at all, and who rather think that they're tremendously superior because they don't believe in such folklore and such nonsense. Look at the great mass of unbelievers. Now, you realize, don't you, they're not all the same. There are some spending their evening in public houses tonight just drinking and getting drunk and perhaps making jokes about it. Yes, but there are others who are members of very learned societies and are doing the same thing in a different way. But you see, they cancel one another out in a most extraordinary manner. The first people I mentioned, they have no use for Christianity. Why? Well, they say it's too serious. It takes all the fun and laughter out of life. Then you go to the others and you say, well, now, why are you not Christians? Oh, they say, look at these evangelistic meetings. It's, it's too light, it's too flippant. They don't take the thing seriously enough. Or take another view of these unbelievers. Half the unbelievers in the world seem to say that they're not Christians because Christianity is too difficult. They say, look at your sermon on the mount. Who can live a life like that? It's impossible. The standard is too exalted. They've often said it listening to me preaching here. They say, you know, that man puts the standard so high. He makes it impossible for us. He condemns us. But the other half are saying equally vociferously, no, no, the trouble with that Christianity is it's too easy. It tells you that you can be forgiven for nothing. That all you've got to do is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. All your sins are forgiven. You're chosen in him. You're justified in him. You're sanctified in him. It's an easy religion. They say, I don't believe it. It means resting on a bed of roses and being carried helplessly to heaven. Too hard, too easy. You see, the world doesn't change, does it? Because he's dead, because he's alive. Cancelling one another out. Too hard, too easy, too simple, too involved. Too high, too low. Oh, our Lord said the truth about the world, didn't he? Unbelief is hopeless. Unbelief cannot be satisfied. Doesn't matter what you do. Whether you send John the Baptist, whether you send the Son of God, it doesn't make any difference. They always want something else. They're always cancelling one another out in the center. What a miserable thing unbelief is. Yes, but let me put it finally in this, in this way. The really fatuous element in unbelief is seen here. That ultimately, of course, all the much vaunted and boasted divisions and distinctions and groups and ideas are all one. The divisions and distinctions are only on the surface. Fundamentally, they're all absolutely identical. Let me show you the things in which they're identical in this very picture. Can't you see that they're all equally governed by their own theories and by their own prejudices? A Pharisee, son of a Pharisee, brought up in the Pharisee, amongst the Pharisees, teaching of the Pharisees. You start with it, you see, and it's your prejudice. 
The other men said, you see, belongs to the other party. And each one is absolutely governed by his prejudice, by his own theory, and by his own idea. That's true of every unbeliever in the world tonight. He starts with a prejudice, and he holds on to it. They're all the same. They're all prejudiced. Whatever a man of the world may say against the Christian, there is one thing he can never say against him. He can never say that the Christian is too small to change his mind. You can't become a Christian without changing your mind. That's called repentance, metanoia, change of mind. If to change your mind's a big thing, and it is, it's a very small person who says, I've always said, and as I've always said, I'm going to say, oh, there's nothing smaller or more despicable than that. But that's the position of unbelief. It's always said it, and it's still saying it. It's so prejudiced that it isn't ready to think again and to change its point of view. They're all identical. Whether they're the great philosophers in the select clubs or whether they're making the common ribald jokes in the bar parlor. The second thing I find in common is this, that they're all so prejudiced that they'll go to almost any lengths conceivable to prove their own point. This is really very laughable. I wonder whether you noticed this element in this story. We are told that there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. You know, these Pharisees were so anxious to damn the Sadducees that they very nearly said that Paul was right. They didn't, of course, because they didn't believe that. But you see, in order to prove that the Sadducees were wrong and that the Pharisees were right, their party, not the other, they were almost ready to say, you know, this man's right, let's let him go. Oh, what a terrible thing prejudice is. Did you notice what we were told in the 28th chapter of Matthew? These wretched Pharisees and Sadducees. When their own soldiers and guards came to them and told them what had happened, that the stone had been rolled away by some unseen power, and that the body had disappeared in a manner they didn't know, when they came and told them the very facts, you remember what they did? They bribed them to tell a lie. That's prejudice. So anxious to maintain its argument and to get its point and to win against the opponent, it'll stop at nothing. It'll twist, it'll change, it'll be dishonest, it'll manufacture facts. And it's happening in the world today. You read it in the newspapers, this whole hoax of evolution is a most perfect illustration of it. We've just had an exposure recently, haven't we? But it's a part of the same thing, you know. It's a part of manipulation of the evidence, you see. And the twisting of things. You start with a theory. In the next few pages, you refer to your theory as a fact. And then you go on with your argument on facts, as it were. That's the dishonesty of unbelief. It's all in this old story. There is no length to which prejudice and unbelief will not carry its victims. They were all exactly the same. The Pharisees and Sadducees were equally prejudiced and equally dishonest in their, argument, in their method of argumentation. The other thing I find in common between them is this. 
they're all equally guilty of the scriptures. These men were the religious leaders. These men were the men who knew the Old Testament and were supposed to read it and to expound it to the people. But they were all equally blind with respect to it and its message. The Old Testament taught the miraculous, it taught the doctrine of spirits, and it taught the doctrine of angels. It prophesied and predicted that the Messiah would be killed and would rise again. It's all there, and they were ignorant of it. Our Lord accused them of the same thing on that occasion. You remember when the Sadducees came to him about this very question of resurrection and put the case of the woman who married the seven brothers, you remember. He said, you know not the scriptures. You do err, not knowing the scriptures. And exactly the same with the Pharisees. Our Lord turned on them one day and said, search the scriptures. You believe them, and you believe that in them you have life. They're the very things that have spoken of me. Why don't you believe me then? The scriptures had told of his death plainly and clearly. But these Pharisees were so blinded by their prejudice about the Messiah that he must be a great military personage and conqueror that they were so blinded by it that even when they read their own scriptures they couldn't see his death, his sacrificial atoning death. They're ignorant of the scriptures, all of them equally so. And the most ignorant drunkard in this country tonight and your most learned and brilliant philosopher are equally ignorant of spiritual truth. The ignorance of your Bertrand Russell is identical with the ignorance of a man who's never opened a book on philosophy in his life. Spiritually, they're equally blind and equally ignorant. There is no difference. None whatsoever. The next thing I find in common is this, that they're all equally determined in their refusal to face the facts, and for the reason that the facts do not fit into their theories. The Pharisees reject the facts about him, the Sadducees reject the facts about Christ. They are equal in their rejection of facts. To put it finally then, I say this that they're identical and there is no difference at all in this ultimate point. They don't believe in him. They refuse him. They reject him. What's it matter whether you're a Pharisee or a Sadducee if you don't believe in Christ? What's it matter if you're the greatest philosopher in the world or a crossing sweeper, if you don't know him, the Son of God, and your personal Savior, it doesn't matter. You're under a common denominator. And there, they're all one. There is none righteous, no, not one. The whole world lieth guilty before God. All mankind is one in sin and failure and shame and alienation against God. Oh, the fatuity of unbelief. Oh, the fuss and the excitement about its divisions and distinctions and its advances and its differences. They're irrelevant. They don't count. They're a fair waste of time. You're all the same in the end. 
It is our relationship to him that matters and nothing else. Well, let me put that positively in a final word in giving to you the lineaments and the characteristics of belief. What is it that characterizes belief? Well, here's the first thing. Belief always starts with the facts. The others, as I've been showing you, always start with prejudices and refuse facts. Belief starts with facts. I do want to emphasize that, you know. I cannot accept the statement that belief starts with feelings. Belief leads to feelings. If people come to me and say they've experienced something wonderful, and when I ask them what it is they can't tell me, I'm not satisfied to call such people Christians. Christianity is based on facts. It starts with facts. This is an historical faith and religion. The Christian starts with the facts. Secondly, he believes them because they're facts. Whether he understands them or whether he doesn't. Whether they fit in with his prejudice and with his theories or whether they don't. I needn't keep you the case of Paul himself. As I showed you at the beginning, puts this clearly once and forever. Paul says, you remember in the 26th chapter of this book of the Acts, I verily thought with myself that I should do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, he thought with himself. He was arguing with himself and going round and round in the circles. He didn't believe in this Jesus. He was an imposter. He was not a Pharisee. He'd never been trained. It was all nonsense. He died. He wasn't the great deliverer that the Pharisees expected. What was it that made Saul of Tarsus the Apostle Paul? The fact. The fact of that face, that voice, that person. The facts. Not a feeling, but the fact that confronted him. And he said, this is a fact I give him. The Christian starts with facts. And though they may smash his theories, though they may ridicule his prejudices, Though they may make to look ridiculous the thing he's always said and the thing he's always been able to prove. He says, I see the fact. I give in. I repent. I've been wrong. That's the second characteristic of belief. The third is this. Belief believes all the facts about him. You've got to be logical to be a Christian. I say you must believe all the facts. You look at these Pharisees. You see, the trouble with them is that they were relying upon the fact that they were partly right. They did believe in the miraculous. They did believe in spirits and they believed in angels. Yes, but they simply believed the facts that they liked and they rejected the others. You can't be a Christian like that. Let me put it as bluntly and as simply and as plainly as I can. A Christian is a man who believes the facts in this book as they are. He doesn't claim to understand them all. But he believes them because they're facts and because they're presented to him in the revelation. I'm told in this book that he was born of a virgin. 
I don't understand that, but I believe it because I'm told it. As a matter of fact, I can argue about that with you, and I can justify my belief in it. But whether I can or not, I believe it because I'm told it. I'm told that he worked miracles. And I believe it because I'm told it. I have nothing to go on apart from what I read in this book. If I cannot believe the evidence and the testimony of these apostles about his miracles, I can't believe their evidence and testimony about anything. So I believe that Jesus of Nazareth turned the water into wine. I believe that he cleansed the lepers, gave sight to the blind, and raised the dead, and calmed the storm on sea. I believe it all, and I find it no difficulty to do so. Because believing in God with whom all things are possible, miracles are not difficult. Indeed, I would go further. I would expect miracles when the Son of God comes on earth. And I find them. But that is no reason for believing them. I believe them because they confront me. They are facts. They are a part of him. The testimony concerning him. And so I believe when I'm told that he went deliberately to his death on the cross because he had said the Son of Man is not come to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He died our death. He has risen again for our justification. He has gone into heaven to prepare a place for us. That is the message. The world cannot be better. It is mastered by this darkness, the darkness of the devil and of hell, and there is only one light that can set us free from it and show us the way to God. He is the one. He doesn't tell you to save yourself. He tells you that he saves you. It isn't his teaching. It's what he's done. I and I alone am the light. He's taken your nature. He's taken your sin. He's taken your punishment. He's been buried in your grave. He's risen. He's interceding for you. He, the Christ himself, not slogans, not philosophy, not teaching, not ideas. I and I alone, the person. Am the light of the world. Are you following him? Are you walking in his light? Are you looking only unto him and resting upon him and his finished work? And are you looking for his blessed, his glorious appearing and the final Glorious consummation. Thank God we are not left to ourselves. We are not left to men, however great and noble and wonderful. God is interested. God loves the world. God has so loved it that he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you got it? Turn to the light. Look to him. And be ye saved. Amen.
We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.